down. Actually, in the ancient world, I have some maps here. If we could put up the, the Google map first, just so we can see where it's at, uh, see what's going on. It's a big step for us using maps, so we'll be, uh, yeah. All right, so here is Corinth. Uh, may not look like much, but it gives you an idea where it is because you have Africa down here, Israel, Iraq, and so forth. So then you have Hungary and the, uh, Romania, the northern, there you go, <laughs> Eastern European countries. Apparently somebody's from there. The, uh, so anyway, so that's where, you know, France, England up over there. So that's, that's where it's located. Can we get the other one now, the more the biblical map? So it's a little bit hard to see on this one, but it's right here. Uh, so Corinth, if you remember correctly, if you remember from a few weeks ago, we've been talking about Rome. Rome is obviously off to the northeast there in Italy. Corinth is about 500,000 people, which is massive. Remember, uh, this is about the, this is written, the letter was written from Ephesus uh, on about 55 AD, right, by Paul. And he's writing back to Corinth uh, because he started the church there. So Corinth is uh, a very interesting city because it's incredibly rich, lots of money there, and we'll talk about why. Uh, it's central uh, for Greek mythology and uh, the kind of religious aspect of it. Uh, it was, uh, how, would you, how would you say it? It was a city of renown in the sense that any time in ancient Greek theater if you were going to portray a Corinthian, that person that was a Corinthian would always be drunk, uh, portrayed as a drunk. They were widely known for uh, explicit, wild sexual practices. They were known for incredible drunkenness. They were, uh, it was, it was a, a city that was pretty much the, the Las Vegas, but worse, right? And th there's a reason we're talking about all this. The reason that they had money is because, it's kind of fascinating historically, they had money, because see this little isthmus right here? So all the trade from Rome, which is up here, going to Asia. Now, we, when the Bible talks about Asia, it's Asia Minor, it's Turkey. Does that make sense? So we see, we see, say Asia, we're talking about the Far East and so forth. They're not. This would be kind of Asia over here and farther that way. So Corinth, not only being a religious center, not only being a philosophy center or a philosophical center for Greek philosophy and so forth, Corinth had this system where all the trade from Rome, most of it would come by ship through here to get to Asia, and they would cross that isthmus. And they did it in two ways. They either loaded a ship on, say, like the north side, they un excuse me, unloaded their ship, and then wagoned it over to the other side to another ship. Those would be larger ships. But in, uh, for the smaller ships, more regularly, they would actually have a group of, uh, I don't know how many, 50, 60 men, and they would take logs. And they would actually haul the ships onto logs, roll it over that isthmus across to the other side into the water. Does that make sense? So whenever you do something like that, you have tariffs, right? You have taxes, you have the cost to do it, all those kinds of things. So there was a lot of money in Corinth, a lot of affluent society in that. Also, because of their philosophy and the polytheism, or just polytheism just means multiple gods, having many gods, polytheists. And so because of that, it was a religious center. There was a huge temple to Aphrodite there. There was a huge temple to Apollos there. In fact, we have a picture of the, it's called the uh, Acrocorinth, if we can pull that up. Maybe. There we go. Okay, cool. 
So I actually sprung all this on this morning on Luke. I was like, hey, I want to do a couple things. He's like, sounds great. Today's Dana's day off, and we're doing stuff. Thanks. So, no, he's, he's a great guy. So this is actually the uh, temple to Apollos, what's left of it. Uh, but this is the Acro-Corinth. And, and what that is is essentially there's this huge rock that's above Corinth, and it's where all the big temples were. Just to give you a, an idea of how big the temple to Aphrodite, we said that the the uh, uh, population is about 500,000. To kind of put that in perspective, Rome at this time is a million, biggest city in the ancient world, and it would be until Victorian England. So Rome is about a million. Corinth is 500,000. Jerusalem is 15,000 at this point. And Nazareth is like 450. So just to kind of give you an example of how those populations were, it's a massive city. So because it was so big and such a center for religious, um, uh, polytheistic religious stuff or activity, the historians estimate there was about 10,000 temple prostitutes, that being men, women, and children, that were on a 24-hour schedule, 24-7, that operated out of the temple of Aphrodite. Uh, and so you have, uh, obviously, with, with idolatrous worship and so forth, sex was a big part of that. Uh, pedophilia was a big part of that. Uh, really, whatever your heart desired. And so if you were going to worship Aphrodite, you typically bring like an offering, whether that was a meat or it could be skins, it could be money, it could be whatever it is. And then after you give that offering, you would engage in some sort of sexual act and then be on your way. That was kind of how it worked. Uh, we know from Ephesus, we, we talked about this when we went through Acts uh, months ago, now, Ephesus, you have the huge uh, temples, like, for example, Diana. You also have uh, these huge promenades and the, um, oh, not stadium, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? The amphitheater where Paul causes a riot and so forth. Now, we know in the ancient Greek cities that uh, in, in, in Ephesus, for sure, and most likely Corinth also, most of the streets were lined with uh, either Overly endowed women, statues of overly endowed women, naked statues, or, or just giant phallic symbols, right? Because these are a, a, a polytheistic society. They're given over to the base desires of humanity. So why, why bring all this up? Why is it just fun to spout weird stuff about wickedness? No, not necessarily. But it's really more to talk about this fact. Paul started a church there. He was there for a year and a half. That's when he started Corinth. And this church grew and grew and grew and begins to thrive and begins to have real problems. And so what I'm, what, all I want to say is this. The gospel and God's kingdom is not thwarted by the society unless we let it. Does that make sense? We can think to ourselves that we have to do all sorts of things to stop wickedness in the country. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. There's nothing wrong with voting your conscience or anything like that. But what I am saying is this. We have nothing to fear. That in the midst of were the most wicked societies that had ever, you worshiped gods with pedophilia. Think about that for a second. That was normal. Hit the temple, go to work. It was normal. It was celebrated. And yet the gospel is going forward and people are getting saved. People that are doing those things get saved because they know the guilt and the shame. We know the guilt and the shame. We know the oppressiveness and the difficulty of wickedness. So I know that for some of us, it's, it's quite alarming to where the culture is going. And I was just talking to someone the other day who said, this is not the place that I grew up and referring to the United States. And this is not how things were and all those things. And, and I lament, too, where the nation's going to some extent. But it doesn't hinder our primary mission. 
It doesn't stop what we're here to do. It actually enhances it. Because the darker that this world gets, the more that love is going to shine through, the more that care will shine through, the more that, that it, being kind to an individual will shine through. It's a rarity now if someone is kind over a difference of opinion, isn't it? It's a rarity now if someone's kind online. I mean, when was the last time that happened? I mean, you get, get some keyboard courage going for you, and it's incredible what people will say to one another. So here's a history that's going on, massive city, massive problems, and a church is born. The other cool thing about this church and about this letter is that it's a letter of correction. Not that we, again, rejoice that they needed to be corrected, but one of the things that we're going to see as we dive in, as we read it, is that this was one of the most dysfunctional churches that you can imagine visiting. Right? Paul's going to talk to them about uh, the fact that there's, there's believers in the gathering that are suing each other. He's going to talk about the fact that you have uh, there's an open sexual relationship in the sense that there's a man who is now, um, uh, I don't know if it's, they don't, it's not really specifically he's cohabitating, but he has some sort of sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. So he's taken his father's wife, okay? And they're coming to church and the, the leadership there just kind of rejoicing in the openness, like, hey, we just, we're open to these kind of things. You have people that are um, getting drunk at, at communion. So for us, communion is a little different today in our society than it was in the early church uh, because they typically would have communion as part of, and this is extra biblical, this is history, this isn't, necess- this isn't from the Bible, but we know that, there, that the, the church fathers wrote about the fact that essentially you'd have like what we call potluck, right? We call them potlucks. Everybody brings some food. They called them love feasts. And after uh, assembling together and worshiping together, then they would go and have a big potluck. And then in that potluck, they would then afterwards, as part of the potluck, they would stop and, and they would all you know, take a loaf of, of bread or matzah or whatever they used, and they would then partake of it together. Does that make sense? So what was happening in Corinth is that people, there were uh, people of means, so there were rich people and there were poor people. And oftentimes the people of means would come together for that potluck and then they would just eat their food. And so poor people that invited people to church and these things, they would get shamed because they would go to the potluck and then have nothing. It was like not actually a potluck. They would just watch other people eat, have nothing. And then those people that were doing that, they would eat and drink so much they would get drunk. And so they'd be drunk and then partaking of communion in in drunkenness, right? So, I mean, just kind of imagine going to a church like that. Imagine just like showing up and this is the norm and this is how things are going and, and whatever. And so Paul is writing back to them, and we'll see how he gets word. There's a, uh, a lady that, that kind of contacts him via letter and says, hey, these things are going on. Can you send us some help? And so that's what he's replying to. It's also noteworthy that 1 Corinthians is not actually the first letter that Paul sent to Corinth. We don't have the first letter. What we have is the fact that Paul, in the middle of this letter, makes a reference, and he says, this is now the second time I am writing to you. So we know that he had written to them before, and we know that he started the church, and we know he's going to write to them again, and we have that in 2 Corinthians, right? The second letter that we have. So these are the letters that we have that Paul is, the first one is a call to to repentance and correction, and the second one is a call, is basically uh, an encouragement and also a, I don't know if you want to call it a thank you, but an encouragement that they did repent and they did turn and, and adhere to his first letter. Okay, so um, what are some other things that we can talk about? I don't know. Let's get into it, right? Just a, I just share those facts so that hopefully that you and I can kind of put ourselves in a position to know who he's writing to. 
okay? And to understand what's going on there, what the church is like, and all those things. So Paul starts off in this, and he says in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, call, uh, excuse me, <laughs> Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is Paul's greeting. It's very similar to many of the greetings that he shares. In this case, it's a little bit of a uh, precursor or it's a hint for us of what the whole rest of the book is going to be. Because he's, he's writing to the church at Corinth, but he's writing to people that are saints that are called together. Okay, Kind of tuck that away for a second. So that's who he's writing to. He writes to them, and he, and he doesn't do this every time. Excuse me. But he writes to them, and he says that he is now Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle. What are apostles? And this is, a, 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 unfortunately, I think, kind of a, a big debate in some Christian circles. So let's, just for information's sake and context's sake, let's break it down. You have the original 12, right? The apostles, the 12 uh, dudes that followed Jesus around, right? Out of that 12, you have Judas, who uh, was, Jesus says, who was a devil. It doesn't mean he was a literal demon, but he was a human being that was not a believer in Jesus uh, that we know of. Uh, Satan being able to enter into him and so forth dictates that he was probably not a believer at all, okay? He commits suicide, he hangs himself, the, the branch breaks or whatever, he falls down and all over the floor, right? And we know the story on that. So then you have this kind of openness, right? You have, there were 11, and now there, or you have 12, now there's 11. So the, the disciples or the elders or the apostles at the time, they decide to use an old method and they cast lots. Now, how they cast lots, we don't know. It could have been choosing straws or long bits of bone. It could have been whatever it was. But in some way, they used randomness. They sought the Lord and they said, hey, Lord. Probably didn't say, hey, Lord, but you know what I mean. They're like, hey, what, what, is, what do you want? Who should be the next guy? And, the, and they threw it out. Whether it was they drew sticks, whatever it was. And it says the lot fell on Matthias. So whether it was like Black 31 or whatever happened, somehow they knew or they felt like they knew that through this casting of lots that, Messiah, or that, that Matthias was the next apostle, the, the apostle to take Judas' place. Was he, wasn't he? I don't know. You never read of Matthias again. So, but there's a lot of apostles that you don't read about again in the book of Acts. So it's hard to tell. We just know that it happened. But see, Paul labels himself in his letters, and he says things like, I am an apostle as one born out of time. Uh, meaning, literally meaning, I'm an apostle that was born at the wrong time. Uh, and and the, the implication seems to be that Paul, with the agreement of Peter, because Peter does cite his letters uh, and so forth, that, that Paul is claiming to be one of the 12. Does that mean there can be 13? What about the pillars? I don't know. But what we do know is he seems to be absolutely equated with the big 12 apostles. Now, there are also other apostles in the scriptures, different times where there are apostles mentioned. The, one of the most prominent ones is in uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 14. It tells us that the apostles, plural, Paul and Barnabas, were traveling together. 
Okay, so now we have the, the title applied to Barnabas also. He's not one of the 12. He, was, he never refers to himself or he's never referred to as one born out of time or anything like that. But he seems to be a person who has an apostolic ministry. So the word apostle, essentially what it means is someone commissioned by someone else to do a mission. That, that's what it is. To come with the authority and with the provision of another person. So how do we look at it? Or how do I look at it? And you can too if you want to. It is this. that You have the apostles, like capital A. The people that were there, they witnessed Christ. Now, they, they saw the resurrection. They were witnesses to the resurrection. All these different criteria that are listed for us in Acts, that these were apostles. But then you also have people that were just apostles. They were sent by God to different places, whether it's going to be Philip or Paul or Barnabas or whoever it might be. They had an apostolic ministry. Does that make sense? What we don't go for, or what I should say what the scripture doesn't go for, is this idea of that now someone raises, is raised up and says, I am an apostle in the context that what I say has the same value as scripture. Does that make sense? And that's what you see in some ministries today where you have a man or a woman who's kind of raised up in this kind of pastoral position, and then they're announced either by their board or by whoever it is themselves, unfortunately, and they say, I am an apostle, and the idea is what I say is scripture, is, is, is law. If I say God has a calling on your life to go to Zimbabwe, then that's what it is, and you better get packing or you're going to be disobeying God, you know, that kind of stuff. So we reject that idea. But Paul here, he's, he's writing this. He, his point is this, ultimately, that he has authority to tell them things. Does that make sense? He has the authority to say, I'm writing these things to you, and you should listen to them. Now, we know Paul. We know that his, his heart wasn't domineering. We know because he wrote in his letters. If, for example, in 2 Corinthians, when he's referring to 1 Corinthians, hopefully that makes sense, in his second letter, he refers to the first letter, and he says, I was so grieved when I handed off the letter. So when he, the second time that Paul, that we have, that Paul writes to Corinth, his own commentary about his heart was, I was very grieved. It was very heavy to me. It was difficult for me to write that first letter. He says, because I knew it would grieve you. I knew it would be hard for you to receive it, right? And then but he says, but I'm glad I wrote it because even though it did burden you and even though it was Hard for you to read, you repented, and now you have this healthy church. Does that make sense? He also says in 2 Corinthians, when he's talking about being an elder and, and eldership, and this is, I think, a flagship verse for me personally. I think us at our church, it's our philosophy of, of eldership or church leadership. He says, we are not to be lords over your faith. We're to be helpers of your joy. Right? So there's a big difference in that. In other words, if you want to go have a beer with a burger, you should go do that if that's what God wants you to do. We're never going to mess with that. If you like that music or this music or whatever, that's your gig. We don't want to mess with that. Now, if you come to us and you say, well, I'm having nightmares every night, we go, well, okay, well, let's pray. Like, what's going on? And you say, well, I just, you know, before I go to bed, I, I love horror movies and I just watch horror movies. Then we might say, hey, we're not here to lord over your faith, but sometimes correlation is causation, right? And maybe watching Saw 3 and people get tortured is actually taking a psychological toll on your mind. And we would like to help you and not have nightmares, so let's pray and start there, right? Big difference. We're never going to come to you and say, do you like what? Oh, no, 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 right? So we know Paul's heart on things. His heart was, I'm not here to domineer you with this letter. 
I'm not here to force you into something with this letter. He says, I'm here to be a helper of your joy. And the bottom line is, if you're shaming people at your, your picnics and at your potlucks, if you're partaking of God's, uh, uh, the remembrance of what our Savior did in an unworthy manner, being drunk, if you're suing each other, if, if, if money means so much to you that you're willing to assault and to sue someone, one of your brothers, that's incredibly dysfunctional and a miserable place to be. So I want to help you with your joy. Does that make sense? So while Paul is writing this, and he uses this line specifically to point out, I have authority to tell you these things, we already know his heart. And his heart is to exercise that authority to bring them blessing. Now, if, we, if you come to a place, or you're in a church somewhere, or you're dealing with something, and you have a person that comes to you and just says, you should do this, and you should do this, and you should do this, and that's what you have to do, or God's going to be really angry with you. You can know that's probably not the way to go about things. But the other side of that coin is if someone who you know and who loves you comes to you and says, I see this in your life and I'm concerned, you probably don't want to reject them. You probably don't want to be like, what do you know? You don't know me. You don't know. Stop judging me. Right? Isn't that you could find someone and say, hey, you know, I've driven by LBT a couple times. I see you throwing up in the, in the gutter. Looks pretty miserable. I'd like to help you. And if your response is, don't judge me, they're not judging you. They're judging the fact that that looks miserable, right? Let me help you with that. So there's two sides to this coin. Anyway, so he starts the whole thing by saying that. I'm, I'm writing to you. He says, I am an apostle, but it's because it's what Jesus wants. And we know that there were other letters and other places where that's backed up. He wasn't just um, full of himself or just kind of trying to exercise some sort of authority that he looks at the church that he started, uh, was there for a year and a half, and he's grieved. And so he writes back to them and says, man, there's, there's just such a better way. In verse 2, we go on, he says this. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the second portion of this, he says, hey, this is, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot Sosthenes. Man, I almost skipped it. Sosthenes is really, it's a cool story. So Sosthenes, because we don't know, did he pen it for Paul? Because remember, we just got done with Romans. And if you look across the page there, you can see that there was a, a man that also sends his greetings that actually penned the letter. So Paul dictated Romans to this person and he penned it. Okay, So we don't know if Sosthenes penned it. We don't know if he did part of it. We just don't know what part he had in Romans. Or, I mean, sorry, in 1 Corinthians. But what we do know is he's now with Paul in Ephesus, and he's part of this letter in whatever contribution he was. So the cool thing is, if we were to go to Acts chapter 18, which is where it talks about where Paul goes to Corinth. So if you want to read up uh, when he gets there, how he goes there, he goes there actually scared for his life. It's really interesting. He's running from one city. This is during one of his missionary journeys. And if you were to go back and, and, and read the book of Acts, or if you were with us when we went through the book of Acts, or you know, you've ever studied it, you know that there's this time where Paul is constantly on the move, right? He's constantly on the move because every time it's the same thing. He goes to a city, he preaches the gospel, right? A bunch of people get saved, and in whatever venue it might be, whether it's in a synagogue or in Athens, he goes to the Areopagus or wherever it is, he preaches the gospel. And, and most people are cool with it. And the Jews are mostly cool with it. Right up until he says, and Gentiles can get saved too. 
And that's when they say, we're going to kill you. It's really interesting. They did that to Jesus too, didn't they? Jesus talked about himself as Messiah. He talked about different things like that. He said all sorts of things. But as soon as he said or, or complimented a, a, a Gentile on their faith, immediately the Jews wanted to kill him. Why? Well, history shows us that essentially for the previous six to 800 years of Jewish history before, it, it kind of goes beyond that, but, but essentially for 800 years pre-Jesus, there was only 70 years in which the Jews governed themselves. Does that make sense? So whether it was the Romans or the Greeks or whoever it was that dominated them, they did not have control over their own nation. And those nations, and we have some biblical you know, history, and then we have extra-biblical history that tells us, whether it was Pilate in the Roman era or whoever it was, that they were a stubborn people. And I'm not making accusation here. We're just talking about who they were. They were a stubborn people. They were a riled people. And they were very uh, onerous to uh, whoever had taken them over. So because of that, and again, not commenting whether that's good or bad, I'm just saying that's the way it was. Because of that, the nations that took them over would often uh, just do horrific things. We have the, the biblical example of Pilate who killed a bunch of Jews, drained, you know, had them somewhat um, drain their blood, mixed it with pig blood, and then sacrificed it to some of their Roman gods. Uh, we, have, we know that their lands were salted. We know multiple times all the trees were taken. We know uh, that uh, it was very normal for a lot of these, uh, unfortunately, for the women to just be ravaged and all these things. So Jews, had, by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, the Jews had reached a point historically where they said, Gentiles can, you know, God will never work in the Gentiles. They can't be saved because of what they, the Gentiles did to them, right? So they kind of had this, predisposed, based on 800 years of history, idea that Gentiles were the scum of the earth. Okay? So every single time that, that Jesus or Paul says, hey, Gentiles can be saved, they rage and they beat him, or they have him arrested, or whatever it might be, and he runs. So when he goes to Corinth in Acts 18, he's on like a long streak of getting the poo beat out of him. It's just the, it's just the reality of it, right? A very long streak. And he comes to Corinth, and when you read in 2 Corinthians... And in, and in Acts 18, the commentary, he says, he says of his journey to 1 Corinthians, we despaired even of our lives. He says, we were in such despair, we didn't even want to live. We didn't know how to deal with it. We, didn't know, we, didn't, we, we were trying to work through it, right? So pretty substantial. We know that in, in Acts 18, it's, it's shown to us, and he actually talks about it in 2 Corinthians, he's so distraught and fearful the mighty Paul, that Jesus appears to him personally. And what does he say to him? Don't be afraid. Who do you say don't be afraid to? People that are scared, right? If you're, your, if you're at your birthday party eating cake and someone walks up to you and goes, hey, don't be scared, it's out of place and weird, right? You'd be like, I'm not scared of calories or frosting. Watch this. You know, it would be out of place. So Jesus is talking to Paul, and he's fearful. We know from his commentary in 2 Corinthians, we know from Acts, he's scared for his life. And so Jesus tells him, he comes to him at night and says, no, don't be afraid. And then he says, check this out. I have a lot of people in this city, in Corinth, in Corinth, where the temple of Aphrodite is, where the temple of Apollos is, where you have 
Sailors just wandering the streets, sexual escapades everywhere, public display, all of it. All the things that we're frightful of, and I'm not saying we should endorse them, it's things that concern us. It's all going on, and God says, you don't have to worry, Paul, because I have tons of people that are going to follow me in this city. They're going to choose me. And he says, and I'm going to protect you. You're not going to get beat for now. And he goes on, and we know that eventually he gets beat again. Difficulties happen, and he's beheaded by Nero in the end. But he gets this promise from God. And so he's there for a year and a half. So Sosthenes, that was a really long story. Who's Sosthenes? Sosthenes, when he goes in Acts 18, and he's drugged before the magistrate, the city, city manager basically, the, the, the Jews drag him there because he said that Gentiles can be saved. And they say, this guy is troubling the whole world, and now he's brought it here too. Like He's just he's causing big problems. And so the, the city manager looks at the Jews and he says, if this were a manner of law, I would listen to you. But because it's not, leave. Basically what he says is, I don't care about your stupid religious quabbles. I'm not going to make a decision on this. Just get out of here. So what, in a sense, what happens to the Jewish leaders of that synagogue, he, the, the city manager belittles them. He mocks them. He, he makes their, their word worth nothing. He doesn't care about their problem. They go to him for justice, what they would call justice, and he says, get out of here. So what they do is they grab the leader of the synagogue. Maybe it was his idea. We don't know. It just says they grab the actual leader of the synagogue, and they beat him. They beat him in front of the city manager. They beat him in front of everybody. And that guy is Sosthenes. So Sosthenes is the guy who is responsible for bringing Paul and making accusations against him for, going, for, for troubling their city. It's Sosthenes that gets the poo beat out of him by all his other Jew friends and the other leaders of that synagogue. That's Sosthenes. And now he's here. You know, I, don't, I think it's like a year later, but now he's here with Paul as either penning the letter or somehow being an encouragement to him in the work. So this is a really encouraging start, actually, with a little bit of backstory, with a little bit of understanding that, that God saves people, that he saves our enemies, that, he, that anyone who's willing to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he saves them. I think sometimes we, could, we, we, we look at situations, whether it's this one with Sosthenes or it's, or it's just what the world is like, and we just go, you know what, we've got to hunker down, vote red, and then make sure that everything's going to be okay. And that's not what we're called to do. We're called to reach out to the Sosthenes. We're called to reach out to the people that are coming out of the temple of Diana or the temple of Aphrodite or Apollos. We're called to love them. We're called to encourage them. We're, we're, you know, if you look at the qualifications for elders, for example, one of the qualifications that says that they must be given to hospitality. The word given there is the, uh, it's, it's the same word in other places uh, that it's, the implication is addiction. Like if you're given to much wine or given to this, right? Given to violence or something like that. It's the same word that the elders are to be given to hospitality, like addicted to it, given over to it, has power in their lives kind of a thing, if you will. So we're to be those that are, have that agape love to look at the, the, the person coming out of those temples, to look at people that we might go, oh, they don't have a chance, and they'll, they'll never think what I think. And they, no, 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 no. It's the gospel that changes lives. It's the reality that Christ paid for sin. It's completely paid for. 
that he did it at Calvary with his own blood. That when he's, when he said, when he's on the cross and his, his life is leaving him, it says things like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That he would look at John and tell John, uh, you know, take care of your mother from the cross. That he'd be concerned about. It's incredible. So the, the, the person that trusts that, there's salvation, right? There, there's people like us, because we're all the same in a lot of ways, that are living that life. They're trying as hard as they can to be fulfilled. You know why you go to a temple to get really weird sex and stuff like that? Because you're looking for some sort of satisfaction. And something in your mind probably has changed and you, you know, there's some weirdness that has occurred to enjoy something like that. You, and, 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 but at the same time, there's deep shame. Deep shame that people are going to feel. Deep shame that, that, that there's this reality like, I don't know how this could be right. There's the Holy Spirit that we're told. We're told that God is working and moving on the earth today, that he's convicting the world of sin and unrighteousness. The Holy Spirit's doing that. So even though we can see things and even though we see people shouting the loudest about things that we might disagree with, those people are empty. And I don't say that in spite. I say that because we have the answer for them. You know why Sosthenes took Paul there? Because he's, he was so involved, he couldn't imagine getting rid of Judaism. I mean, I don't want to infer too much into the text, but it was just this idea that he had some sort of idea that there's just no way what Paul said could be true. But somehow in the loss and being beat or humiliated or whatever it was, he was willing to humble himself. In some way, somehow, we don't know how it happened, he finds the gospel. He receives it. And now this guy that he tried to get killed, he's following him to follow Christ. Changed lives, miraculous changed lives. That's who Sosthenes is. Uh, verse 2. So now it's to the church of God. So the, again, the word church here, we've talked about this a little bit in the last weeks. This is really important. He's not writing to a building. There's no P.O. box. He's, it's the church, the ecclesia, the called out gathering of God in Corinth. So he's writing to, and he expands on that a little bit, uh, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and those who are called to be saints in every place. So he says, I'm writing to everybody who's in Corinth, I'm writing to all the people that are attending that, you know, that are part of that called out gathering. And we don't know, again, church buildings aren't mentioned in church history to like 250, 275 AD. So that doesn't mean there weren't any. It just means that there weren't any of note big enough that people would write about them uh, that we have anyway. So I don't want to make absolutes. I want to be careful with that. But that being said, most people lived in, uh, they, they met in homes. Now we, we mentioned last week, like for example, in Rome, uh, it was normal to have a family of five, four or five in an apartment that was about the size of this part of our stage, right? Because they had apartment complexes. They're about five stories tall. And the poorest people lived on the top because there's no water, no bathroom, no nothing. Richest people live on the bottom. So you're not going to meet in a church in that, right? So those people are probably meeting other places. You know, we have examples of Lydia and different uh, uh, men and women that were people of means. And so they had larger homes and they allowed the church to meet in their homes and so forth. So we know that that's how they were meeting. We don't know where they're meeting in Corinth. Uh, it could have been multiple small churches. There might have been a main church. Evidently, Paul, though, writes in a way, I think we can agree, he writes in a way that he expects that these people are going to gather together and hear the letter. Does that make sense? So he's probably writing to a central church, the, like the main mothership, if you will, uh, that's going to be able to disseminate the letter to other small churches. But he says this. He's writing to the called-out gathering of believers that are in Corinth, 
<laughs> to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Corinth, sanctified in Christ, called saints. Like, how do you get that? How are these people that go to a church like this and are involved? How are they saints? Now, we, saints might be spoiled for us because like the, the Catholic church uh, and other churches have saints. And so if, if in our modern vernacular, a lot of times if someone says that person's a saint or if you say that person's a saint, what are you saying? You're just saying that's a really good person, right? Um, and, and even non-believers use the term to this day. You know, oh, that person's a saint. So that's essentially what they're saying. So... There's the, what's being said here is it's not, I wouldn't say a play on words, but it's the same word. So sanctified and saint are the same uh, root Greek word, hagios. It just means holy or set aside. Like, for example, when the, uh, any, example, any uh, allusion to the, the utensils from the Old Covenant, whether it would be like the meat hooks or tongs or different things that they used, they were always called, they were holy. They were set aside. So the priests, you know, when they finished their work for the day, they didn't grab the tongs and then go home and like flip burgers with them. You know what I mean? They were, those were sanctified and only used for that job. Okay? So when he says he's writing to believers, he's writing to people that are sanctified or in the sense, present act of being set aside, that God is working in their hearts. They're becoming more like their Savior and to those who are saints. And the saints are just people that are believers. How do we know that? Because we know from Romans chapter 3, and I mean all the stuff we've been covering for the last months and other places and Colossians, all over the place, that a person is made holy because of what Jesus did, not something that they've done. Right? No person in the history of humanity has made themselves holy, nor have they ever maintained their holiness. You know, one of the things I like about 1 Corinthians, and you know, I know in, in, in Romans I did a lot, and, and uh, we will some here too, uh, just because I'm an eternal security guy, uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is, is, there's so many great illusions in here that support the other texts like in Romans that a person is holy because of Jesus. And so he's, he's writing to Corinth, and he's calling them sanctified people. He doesn't say the people that don't drink too much at your love feast are the sanctified ones and the rest of you are lame. He's calling generically at Corinth holy ones and sanctified ones. And this is important because it would have been read generically out. You say, oh, just because that. No, but when you look at, there's, there's, a, there's an important idea here that when a person believes in Jesus, they're forgiven of their sin because Jesus said that and because he paid for sin. The Bible uses certain imagery, and, and we'll, we'll look at it maybe a little more, but the Bible uses imagery, things like this. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I don't know entirely what that means, that somehow bodily, in his human the likeness of sinful flesh is, is called. In his likeness, in his flesh, somehow he became so acquainted with and introduced to and brought sin upon himself that the Bible presents it as that he became sin. 
that he bore that on himself. In another place it says that he took our sins, the ordinances written against us, and he nailed them to his cross. Now this is not just the past. Because it says that he died for, in 1 John 2 it tells us, he died not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. English world. Greek cosmos. The created universe. So the, the implication there, not really implication, what it's saying is this, that Christ's sacrifice at Calvary paid for every sin of every human that will ever live, past, present, and future. He took all sin, every sin, even the sin that you're going to commit on the way home, or that I might, and he paid for it at Calvary. So when we begin to say, no, 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 some of those people at Corinth might have lost their salvation... Or something like that. This is what we're saying. We're saying that Jesus Christ's blood paid a down payment for sin. But now my works and my repentance maintain my righteousness. That's what righteousness is, right? Righteousness is being right with God. So when we begin to say that a person can lose salvation, what we say is, you, you're saying you have to be faithful enough. There's some line somewhere. And you have to be faithful enough to keep your head above that line. And then you maintain your salvation. It's interesting because that's specifically addressed in Romans chapter 4. When it tells us that to anyone who works, what they receive is considered a wage. But to the one who does not work, but is made righteous by God, by the blood of Christ, that person's righteousness is by faith. So... When we say that a person loses salvation, what we say is a person earns it. By, by faith, by being faithful and by good works, that maintains their salvation. And, and ultimately, that means that God is our debtor. Because what I'm saying is, I've been a good boy from the day I got saved till now, which I don't know how anybody could come up with that logic, but we'll roll with it. I've been a good person. My good outweighs my bad, however you'd like to put it. I've done enough, I've repented enough, whatever it is. From that day until this day, and because of that, God now owes me heaven. Because I was faithful. Because I was good. I maintained my salvation. That's where that goes. So nobody, well, I'm sure there's people out there that want to say, like, that eternal security is slape agape, and it's just, you know, you live however you want and whatever. I don't, know, I, wouldn't, I don't know if I would classify it that way. If you, if you, you know, said, James, do you believe that a person who genuinely received Jesus Christ and lives like hell for the rest of their life can go to heaven? I would say 100% I believe that. They're going to go to heaven with nothing. They're going to go to heaven stripped of who they are. And that's what 1 Corinthians 3 is going to tell us. It's going to say that the person who lives like that, who, who builds with wood, hay, and stubble, it says their whole life, their life will be burnt away but they themselves shall be saved as by fire. So yeah, I do believe that. But I believe that that'll be both a sad day for that person and a glorious day because we will be faced with the reality that we as Christians neglected what God's call was in our life. So here's the deal. That was kind of a long explanation. Paul is writing to this dysfunctional broken church. A church we would probably leave because we have like 25 on the peninsula. Right? We can go anywhere. 
If I take you off here, you can go up the street. Go to Chris Garrison's church. He's a good guy. I hang out with him all the time. Go to PBC. God bless you in that. But they have one. And so here they are. There's this dysfunctional, crazy church. And someone from the household of Chloe is wild enough to write a letter to Paul. And Paul's response to that letter is, I'm writing to you because you are holy. Not because of what you're doing, but because of who Jesus is. And I'm writing to you because God has a plan for you to be sanctified and to walk in what he has for you. And he's writing to them because he cares and he loves them as a faithful elder, as a, as a person who's, who, who cares for them. And so he says, you're sanctified in Christ. It's interesting that he uses the past tense and then you're called to be saints together. In other places, we talk about being sanctified in a presence tense. But here he's talking about this work that's already been done in them through Christ. And he says, with, and then he goes, with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And he's going to go on, he's going to talk about, the first thing he's going to talk about is division and difficulty. And he's going to talk about how, uh, how to relate to one another, all these different things. He's, he's going to, in, in verses 4 through 9, he's gonna have, he has actually a ton of uh, blessings to talk about. But in this, in, in this point, this is a, a foreshadowing for the entire letter that we are together with everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. With everyone. You know, later on, as I mentioned, he's going to say that there's a problem there, and so people are picking favorite teachers. They're saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of uh, Cephas or Peter. And one, one of the super spiritual guys says, well, I'm of Jesus. And, and he says, you know, what are you guys doing? Why are, you, why are you dividing up into those things? It's perfectly fine. This is just my opinion, so you throw it away. I'm a big fan of denominations. I'm going to be honest. I'm a huge fan of denominations because we're all different. You know, if, if we were all exactly the same, then we could, you know, get together and buy, you know, 5,000 acres and all go and worship the exact same way with the exact same music, with the exact same teaching styles, with the exact same dress, with the exact same appreciation for conversation, with the exact same uh, way we worship, with the exact, you know, do you see what I'm saying? That'll never happen because we're all different. Some people might really like liturgical stuff. They feel safe. I've had a few friends that have been absolutely burnt by pastoral um, infidelity in different ways. And so they love the, they, they go to liturgical churches now. And they like it. They feel comforted by that because they know that there's a, a bishop who's going to watch over that and he's going to do this, he's going to do this, and this. And so they feel comfortable knowing that the person that's speaking to them has some sort of accountability in their life. So who would I to come along and say, well, the liturgical is terrible? You know, or, or you shouldn't do incense. Really, you shouldn't do incense? Okay, why? Well, it's of the flesh. Is it? Why do we have music? Is music for academic ascent? I don't think so. Music is emotional ascent, isn't it? Spiritual ascent. You know, the, 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 your nose is one of the most memory-driven senses that you have. Things that you smell will stick with you longer than many other things that you see or hear. It's interesting. We're not going to start busting out incense here because I think it's oppressive and it reeks. But, you know, if somebody's into it, like God bless them in that, right? Who would we to be to come along? Some people might want to wave flags. You know, it's funny because we might criticize a, a church that wants to wave, wave flags, but then if we go to a football game, we got our 12s on and we're waving and we're go-go a bunch of rich guys who don't care about me at all. Right? 
So if we go to a church and they want to run up and down the aisles and, and they're so excited about Jesus, they want to wave flags, God bless them. You say, what if somebody did that here? We'd ask them to stop. Well, you, because there's one person doing it. And if we had one person in here running back and forth waving a flag, would you guys be focusing on Jesus? No, you'd be focusing on the dude waving a flag, right? So, so no, it doesn't happen here because we're maybe a little more conservative. It doesn't mean we disagree with it or don't like it or criticize it. We're all God's people, right? You may like this style of worship. Other people might want rocky worship. Other people might. So who are we to dictate to other people that if it's ministering to them, what they should do? He just says, I'm writing to every single person everywhere that's calling on the name of the Lord. Now, if you go to a church and they're sacrificing a chicken, you can be like, hey, I'm pretty sure the blood of Jesus was all we need. And chickens are never even mentioned in the Old Covenant, so I don't know why we go there, right? You might have something to say about that because that is a, a doctrinal wrong and really messy, right? You don't want to get into that. So that's, he's just saying, look, I'm, I'm writing to, to everyone, to all believers, to the ecclesia, the called out gathering of Jesus. It helps me to realize uh, when I wrestle with things or something, you know, I'm like, oh, I don't know. It helps me to realize that in the Psalms, multiple times, David and Asaph, they all say that when God judges, he's going to judge with equity, which means that every single person will get what they're supposed to get. And so I don't have to worry about what other people are doing in their churches because if there was something that was going wrong or if it was of the flesh or something like that, it'll be made right. But I don't have to be the, the church police. Right? I don't have to go inspecting. I don't have to uh, go around looking at, at Twitter and find out what all the pastors are doing wrong. Or, you know, I don't have to do that because all I'm responsible is for me, where I'm at. So I, lo- I love that idea. The universal church is so important. We're all different, but God's doing something great. And he's uh, our Lord and theirs, as Paul says. Then he says this, verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a common greeting. I believe it's in every single one of the letters he writes. And it's a mixture of the two. You guys may be familiar with this. But it's so in, in the common Greek language, it's not Christian. It might be the charis of Aphrodite. Charis just means grace, right? So the idea, the, the offer is this grace to you, favor to you. So it's just, it's like a, we might say, hey, how you doing? What's going on? How are you? Hello. Their greeting was just, a greeting of kindness, essentially. Like you're, you meet a person and you're wishing grace to them. I hope that you find f- you, you, favor be upon you, is what you're saying. Now, as Christians, we do it differently, right? When we say favor, we're not like the grace of Aphrodite be upon you. You know, we're coming along and we're saying, you know, God's grace be upon you. And I also want to know, who's this writing? Who's he writing this to? Drunk people at church. People with open sexual relationships. People that are suing each other. Is he endorsing it? No, he's about to write... 16 chapters of why it's bad, right? That they need to stop, that they got to repent, that they're destroying people around them. But as he approaches them, it's this approach of grace, this kindness, like God's favor to you. And then the second is, uh, is the Jewish greeting. This goes all the way back to the Old Covenant, the idea of shalom or peace be to you. So the Greeks said, hey, merit or un- 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 unmerited favor to you, grace to you. And the Jews were, may God's peace be upon you. So he's just mixing the two greetings, and he's saying, look, grace and peace be to you. It's just a multicultural greeting that Paul's giving here. He's saying grace and peace. But from what? From God. Notice he doesn't say grace and peace because you have a great church. Grace and peace because everything's going right in your life. Grace and peace because your bank account is fat. None of that, right? 
He just says grace and peace because of God. And again, just to reillustrate, that's probably the only place there was grace and peace in Corinth. I mean, I can't, I, I wish, I hope we could see some of this stuff in heaven. I would love to just take, a, to, to travel back in time and just see the church forming in Corinth. Just in my mind, and again, it's, 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 you have to be careful because it's guesswork, it's, it's inferences, and, and we don't want to just insert too much here. But can you imagine what happens when people get saved from worshiping with pedophilia? Can you imagine what happens when you have literally an entire church of polytheists? They don't understand the Trinity. We don't understand the Trinity. They can say, whoa, 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 whoa. What you're saying is Apollos and Aphrodite and Zeus can't be gods because they're three, but our God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and that's valid? Help me out with that, right? Different practices, all the things, all that stuff. We sing now? We sing hymns? All that stuff. It would just be different. And so to me, it's so cool that Paul is writing back to these people, even though it's hard things, and he's just saying, God's got great things for you. He has grace for you. He has peace for you. You need to repent, right? That's where he's going to go. You need to repent. You need to stop abusing each other. But God has great things for you. So it's just a great introduction to a great letter where we're going to learn all sorts of stuff. We're going to get head coverings covered. That's exciting, right? We can finally learn why head coverings are from. We can learn about communion. We can learn about we shouldn't sue each other. If you borrow a lawnmower and they bring it back broken, you should probably just eat it. You know, all that stuff we love. Not eat it literally. Look, eat the cost. But God is good. And here's the thing. Regardless of where you're at today, if you're in sin, you should repent. You should turn from sin. Because it's destroying you, and you know it. And anybody in your life knows it, too, if it's visible. But you're, you're repenting not to a wrathful God that's trying to get you. You're not repenting so that you can somehow maintain your salvation. You're, you're repenting not to law, but to love. You're repenting to a God who cares for you, has the best for you. And in turning from sin, you'll receive the blessing of one, not living in death anymore, but, but experiencing eternal life. A life you already have, but now to get to, to walk in its fullness. And it's interesting because Jesus told us, if we have the communion and we'll have the uh, worship team come up here in a second. Communion, at least it's, it's at its institution, maybe not so much for us because we're a little detached from that, but it, at its institution, communion was radical, radical. Because for a thousand years or more, I can't, I don't know the exact timeline because it was like 40 generations and 40, whatever it is, communion was the Passover, right? And so Jesus comes along one day and he says, okay, funny story. He didn't say that. That's my, uh, my hyperbole. And he says, hey, the old covenant, I'm bringing the new covenant. So the old covenant, you killed a bunch of animals, and they never forgave sin. They smeared over sin. And he says, but here's what I want to do. When you eat this bread, when you, when you eat together, when you, I want you to consider me. And he says, I want you to consider my body that was given to you. And, and you think about that Jesus walked around. He wore sandals. He wrote, you know, wore the uh, uh, man dress looking things. You know, all that stuff. He, that's what he did. And he, like, he touched people. 
He healed people. He got in discussions with people. The woman at the well where he's talking to her, he's like, hey, will you give me something to drink? And she was like, uh, why are you talking to a woman? And he's like, well, if you knew who was talking to a woman, you'd say, why don't you give me something to drink? You know? And he just has dialogue. And then he's able to, and then he tells her like, oh, yeah, no, you're right. You've had four husbands or five husbands, and the one you live with now, he's not actually your husband. You dirty, no. And then he gives her life. He preaches the gospel. I mean, just every time. The, 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 one of the most shocking ones to me is, is John 5, the man who's sitting at the well of Bethesda. And Jesus walks up to him, and he's like, hey, do you want to be made well? And the guy's like, well, you know, here's the thing. You know, I try to get in, I you know, can't use my legs. I'm trying to, every time the, the, the waters get, because it was a rumor, it was, the, the, the rumor was, it was kind of like one of those, I don't know, I don't want to be belligerent, but like, I don't know, people come up with like supernatural things that might happen. That's what it was. And the rumor was if, if an angel stirs the water, the first person to jump into the sheep pool. You know why it's called the sheep pool? It's where they cleaned all the sheep. So yeah, not a cleanly place, but the rumor was the first person to jump into that funk is made well of all their afflictions. So when Jesus comes along and he says, hey, do you want to be made well? The guy's like, dude, I'm trying. He doesn't say dude. But he's like, hey, I'm trying to get in there, but I, don't have, I can't use my legs, and somebody beats me into the water. And then Jesus says, well, take up your bed and walk. No faith... No aha moment, no like merit. He didn't, he didn't have, he, you know, Jesus didn't say, your, your faith has made you well. He doesn't even address the fact that the guy doesn't even recognize or care to recognize or whatever it is that the man who can't heal him is standing right in front of him. He gives him an excuse of why he's not healed. Instead of Jesus going, well, you could have asked me, but you didn't, so I walk on. He says, well, just get up and walk. Grace, unmerited favor. Kindness. So he says, I want you, to, when you eat this, I want you to remember my body. I want you to remember the life that I live. And he says, that it's for you. This seems, it's like a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. It's true, but it's like a fairy tale, isn't it? Because if you live in the world I do, you say, there's no free lunches, man. Why would God care about me? Why would God say he wants me to remember him because he loves me? If I instituted this, I'd be like, yeah, remember my body, because I'm about to get ripped to shreds because of you fools. My father has this will that I have to do and come down here and save you. That'd be my attitude. So yeah, you eat that, and you be shamed and guilted every time you do, because it's what you deserve. So it can be hard for us to realize that, no, he cares for us. In fact, that's what he told the disciples. When you read about it in Luke, Luke's description of the first, the, the, the original uh, instance as he says, Jesus looks at him and he says, it is with desire that I've desired to eat this with you. That's wild. So what you're telling me, Jesus, who's about to be crucified tomorrow, and he knows it. It says that he understood at this point what's going to happen. And your commentary on that is, you want to eat with me? Man, we can't eat with be in the same room with people that wrong us sometimes. We won't be near them. We'll, we'll judge them and measure them and, and hold grudges till we die. And here Jesus is saying, I have been looking forward to this last supper with you guys. And if that's not enough, then he says, I'm never going to drink wine or partake of this again until we do it together in the kingdom of heaven. That's wild. That Jesus not only loves you in some sort of generic love, 
that he personally likes you. He wants to be with you. You know, we do that, right? Typically, we don't at our house because I'm like, I like hot food and I'm rude. But, you know, you know if, some, if you go to dinner somewhere, something happens, right? It's like the, the, the food gets served and you don't just immediately start scarfing it down, right? You wait till everybody else gets their plate. And what are you doing? You're respecting them, right? You're showing that you care about them, that they, that they matter, that you love them. And so here's this, this thing that Jesus, the sacrament that Jesus institutes. And he said, I want you to remember my body. I'm really excited to do this with you guys. And he says, and after this point, I'm, I'm waiting until you get to be where I am. And then I'll eat it again with you. And then he takes the cup and he drinks and he says, I want you to remember that the new covenant, the new deal, deal is really weak, but the, the new, uh, it's, not, it's not a contract. It's a deal. But it's a really good deal, right? And he says, this new covenant, it's all in my blood. He didn't say, it's my blood and your faith, my blood and your effort, my blood and you being good enough. He just says, there's a new covenant, and it's through my blood that my blood will pay for all sin. In the old covenant, the, bull, the blood of bulls and goats smeared, blotted is the literal term, blotted sin out, but it never forgave it. But he says, my blood completely forgives sin, never to be heard of or seen of again as far as my father's concerned. So that's why it's such a blessing to be able to come here to examine our lives and say, Lord, am I right with you? Not am I right for righteousness sake because I'm somehow unrighteous. We're righteous with God by his blood. But am I in communion with you? Am I in fellowship with you? Or am I insisting on sin? And then just to confess that and look, Lord, forgive me. And the, and, and the implication in 1 Corinthians 11 is, and then so let him eat. The emphasis is on eating. The emphasis is on, on fellowshipping with Jesus. The emphasis is on being considering who he is and what he's done. The emphasis is not condemnation or exclusion or anything. The emphasis is on inclusion by the blood of Jesus. So it's, I will never be on time. And I'm not trying to be flippant about that because it is lame. Uh, but it's 12.01, so we're going to have communion. And if you've got to go, you've got to go. There's no disrespect in that. But uh, when you go out of here, God loves you. He loves you. And he likes you. <laughs> He's waiting for you. He wants to have a meal with you. He wants to hang out with you. He knows you're broken. He paid for your brokenness. It's paid for. Your deepest, darkest, scariest secrets, that you would die if someone knew, are paid for. It doesn't mean we should continue in darkness. I'm not saying that. But they're not being held against you. Things that, that we might hold against you, even though we shouldn't, God is not holding them against you. And he's invited you to come and partake with joy and peace, with grace and peace, because of what Jesus did at Calvary. So I encourage you to do that, to partake with joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great kindness and mercy. And Lord, thanks for the opportunity to begin uh, this letter to Corinth. And Lord, where would we be without you? We'd be done for. You've always been kind to us. You've always only done good to us. And Lord, we can confess like the psalmist and John that all of heaven should worship you. You're owed to be bowed down to. Lord, not just because you're powerful and sovereign, but because you love us. Thank you for everything, really. We're humbled. We're blessed. We pray, Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and truth. Help us to not be distracted as we sing. Help us to rejoice in the body and the blood of the Lord and to remember your soon coming. Thank you, Lord Jesus.
In his name we pray, amen.